I love being on here with you guys, Nick and Joe. I really appreciate it. TLDR, you guys are awesome. Joe, we put this one together pretty quickly. Uh, we got a surprise interview that uh, got thrown our way. And uh, it's about a book that you talked about on this show a little while back. I actually read this last week ahead of the trade being released. Who are we speaking to today? Well, I, I'm very excited to talk to uh, Charles Ardai uh, today because Gun Honey, uh, which I've talked about on the show, as Nick mentioned, he read last week. This is a book that I, had, I hadn't heard about when I was at Newbury Comics uh, going up to you know, pick, my, uh, you know, pick up my stack that week. Uh, one of the guys I talked to said, have you heard about this book? And I said, no. He goes, well, you know, it's, it's been picked up and I've heard really good things about it. So I grabbed it and, and, and Charles... From from the first page, I said <laughs> this book is it's a must read. I can't wait to talk oh, about it on our show. Uh, welcome, how you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. I, I'm really glad to be on your show. I did see the coverage you gave it, and I appreciate it. You know, I think a lot of us were surprised. I was surprised by how the book did. Crime isn't the biggest genre in comics, obviously. It's not superheroes. It's not zombies. It's not science fiction. And this didn't have a movie or TV tie-in. So I expected it to kind of come and go. I was proud of the story I was telling. I thought the character was good, but I really didn't think it would pick up the way it did. And then it became, I was just told, Diamond's, uh, I forget, they don't call it indie bestseller, bestselling indie comic. They call it bestselling non-premier comic, which is about as backhanded a compliment as wow. you can someone. Non-premier. But you know what? I'm proud of it. We are, non-premier, I think, means not superhero, not Marvel, not DC. And, you know, Titan Comics that publishes our books, our hard case crime comics are through Titan Comics. They do have these sort of A-list properties like Assassin's Creed and Doctor Who and uh, Blade Runner, which are all fantastic comics. Yeah. And for Gun Honey to hold its own next to those is pretty darn special. So I, I was I was really tickled by it. Yeah, and for those who uh, are waiting to pick up the trade for this, the synopsis off of the first issue, when a gun smuggled into a high-security prison leads to the death of dozens in the escape of a brutal criminal, notorious weapons smuggler Joanna Tan is enlisted by the U.S. government. Find the man she set loose and bring him down. So obviously, this you know it sounds awesome from the jump, and both Joe and I both <laughs> really you. enjoyed this. Um, but first, we got, I got to ask, like, where did the, your talent for anagramming come from? <laughs> because I mean, for those who don't know, Gun Honey's an anagram, uh, for, and you have, of course, Richard Al Alias? Alias, Alias, just Alias. pronounce the way it Alias. looks. Well, so I wrote two books at the start of my novel writing career. I'd write, written short stories for for magazines for years and years, but I hadn't written a novel, and I started the line of books, Hard Case Crime, before it had any comic books. I was a comic fan from when I was a little kid. My book was Flash. I was like a Barry Allen Flash guy. But we didn't start by publishing comics. We started by publishing traditional books with one picture on the front cover and the rest was just type, words. And I wanted to write some books for the line myself. And I thought it was sort of unseemly to be both the editor who buys the books and the writer who writes them. That seems sort of sketchy. Mm -hmm. And so I did it, but I wanted to hide the identity. And so I created a, uh, a fake name, a pseudonym, and I decided it would be fun to make it an anagram of my name. And the anagram I came up with, my real name is Charles Ardai. I just rearranged all the letters, like Tom Marvolo Riddle is Lord Voldemort, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I changed it to Richard Alias. And I would have spelled it right, except that I didn't have a second I to use in my name. So it was Richard Alias, A-L-E-A-S. And that was my, my pseudonym. And it did quite well. The two books were really well received. The reviews were good. So at that point, I admitted that it was me. Anyway, flash forward a bunch of years. Now I've started doing comic books. And I sit down with an old friend of mine named Yuni Hong. Now her name is spelled E-U-N-Y-H-O-N-G. She's a journalist, a very respected journalist who's written a number of nonfiction books about Asia and 
I suggested to her that she might enjoy writing a book for Hard Case Crime, and she didn't want to do it under her real name, which is the name she uses for her serious journalistic writing. And I said, well, why don't you use an anagram, just like I did? And she said, you can do that. You have more letters in your name, and they're good letters. What are you going to do with Yuni Hong? And I thought for a minute, went through it in my head, and said, well, how about Gun Honey? Now, Gun Honey is a terrible idea for a pseudonym. What can you imagine that? Such and such written by Gun Honey? That would be bizarre. No. Uh, but it was a good title, and I just couldn't forget it. And so I offered Uni the chance to write a book called Gun Honey, and she didn't do it. And after a few years passed, I realized she wasn't going to do it. And then I decided I'd do it myself. And that's where Gun Honey came from. And uh, I made her half Asian in honor of, of Uni and uh, set the book partly, the flashback portion of the book, in uh, Singapore and Malaysia, where the character's from. And I thought, this will be interesting. You know, there is a history of kick-ass, strong female action heroes going back probably to Modesty Blaze, the great sort of female James Bond figure who was a comic strip heroine and then a, a, a novel heroine and a movie heroine. Uh, and I thought, what, what can we do to bring that into the modern day and have a character who's as cool as Bond or Bourne, uh, but on the wrong side of the law, <laughs> rather than just breaking the law occasionally in the course of a mission, you know, it's like a secret agent can, can kill people, but Technically, he's not on the wrong side of the law. He's still empowered by the government. Well, what if we put her on the really the wrong side of the law? So she works for the crooks and um, and, and make her a woman. It'll be more fun. It'll be interesting. And so that, that's where Gun Honey came from. Now, where yeah. I learned how to anagram, God only knows, too many crossword puzzles, I think. <laughs> ah, there we go. That makes sense. Yeah, because she's she's a real you know badass character, and and we also saw this a little bit. We seen it with Chip Zdarsky's uh, Newburn, where he's his main character is sort of he's a a lawyer or he's a, a private detective for the mob. So this idea of our you know our our protagonist, if you will, working for the wrong side of the law, I think is is really uh, fascinating. But what I want why initially did you want to have Muni um, write this story and not just write it yourself from the get go? Well. You know, I started out as a writer, but somewhere along the line, I became an editor. And an editor's job, in some ways, is to give good ideas to other people and shepherd them into existence. And it's nice. It's what they call a high leverage job because I couldn't write 100 books. And I've published 100 books by other people, including famous people like Stephen King and not famous people, first novelists. But the nice thing is, if I come up with 100 ideas, that's more than I could write in a lifetime. If I give them to other people, you end up with really great books that I'm proud of and I have a role in, but I don't have to physically write every one of them. This is what James Patterson does too, by the way, the big best-selling writer. He puts his name on his books, but uh, he writes yeah. very, very little of the books. And um, one of the things that I realized uh, early on for the comic books is that it's a different kind of writing. You know, I, I've written prose novels. I know how to do that, but comics are a completely different skill. I've even written for television, not much, but a little for a TV show called Haven. And I found writing scripts for comics much harder. And so I initially, I was, I think I was a little nervous about writing comic book scripts. The thing is on TV, you can write, she goes to the box and opens it. In a comic yeah. book script, either the box is open or it's closed. There's no open the box. You know, everything is in a frozen moment in time. Oh, you can play around with a little where you have like multiple frames overlapping, but that, that kind of trickery, you can't do that over and over. So you know, she she jumps at the uh, target and shoots while she's going. You, you have to actually figure out what's the image in the moment. And then on top of that, you have weird things like you want any surprise to come when the reader turns the page. Like you don't want a, mm. a, a right hand page surprise because as he's reading the left hand page, he'll glimpse what's on the right hand page. Right. Mm. Yeah. And so you really want your, your surprises to come when you turn that right hand page. So all your surprises should be left hand pages. That's a real 
that that's a challenge. And so anyway, I found writing comics to be harder. And I, I started for the first few years, I didn't write any of my own. I would edit other people's not write. And then finally, I just fell in love with, uh, with Joanna Tan and her situation. I said, I'm going to write this one. I'm going to do it myself. But it took me years. I really, I sat writing this thing for years. Now I did other things at the same time, but it, I think it took five years for me to write the, uh, the first set of scripts. Now I just finished writing uh, Gun Honey 2, which is called Gun Honey Blood for Blood. And she's coming back. And this time it was much easier because I, I, I knew the routine already. So I think it, it is something it's like, uh, I don't know if it's riding a bike or falling off a horse or whatever, whatever you say, <laughs> but uh, it, it does get easier the more times you do. So on a quick, like um, yeah. you're looking at the, the writing in depth a little bit more so um, where you talk about like the, the, the challenges that you face, the narration is one thing that kind of stood out to me. And I can be, as a reader, I can be a little bit finicky about that sometimes, but yeah, with, your, with yours, it was um, what I really liked, maybe this is just more because of how I think, but you, it was more like the, the self-talk wasn't I, it was you. So it was kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got, so I, I found, I don't know when this started. You can maybe tell me. So as I said, I was a Barry Allen kid growing up and there was no narration none and if there was it was omniscient uh, third person it was like yep. the carmen infantino hand that would point from one box and it would say the scarlet speedster runs up the side of a wall faster than a hurricane mm. but then by the time he got to wally west flash he was constantly talking to himself and there were all these uh narration boxes that would go like this yeah that's me flash i'm the fastest man alive mm -hmm. and i don't know when that transition in comics happened from the third person to the first person narration some of it can be done really well. If a writer's good, he can get away with anything, but I always find it to be a little awkward. And so when I wanted to do it for Joanna, I decided I want to do something different. It was an experiment. And some people asked about it, you know, on the, on the editorial side of Titan, they said, do you really want to do first person? I mean, second person, which is you. It's like, you're the best in the world at what you do. Now go do it. It's mm. talking to yourself. It's the way you might have a, like a pep talk for yourself when you're too nervous to do something and you're telling yourself you got to go do your job. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was more interesting for this character. I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong, but for me, I found that more interesting. I liked it a lot. It was, and like I said, I think it's maybe a little bit how I personally think, but also just like we get so, like you said, we get so much of the I, like I, I got to do this. And sometimes it's, sometimes it works great, but there are other times where it's just like, you know, it's kind of forced. No, you're you're absolutely right. I also wanted to do, um, a good portion of the story is told in flashback and not that many of the pages, but each issue has an important flashback and then it pays off, of course, in the plot. And I wanted to distinguish between the present day periods and the past. And I generally used the uh, the narration in the past. It leaked into the present as well a little bit, but that was one of the ways to make it look different. I also we used a different color palette. We used a sort of flatter, darker, dimmer color palette for the past. And I just want to make it clear when you looked at the page, okay, I'm not in the present anymore. I'm in the past. So these are little tricks that we use to try to make it clear to the reader. So you talked about how, you know, going, you know, writing prose and, and then doing scripts for comic books was a, a much more difficult task with your history of writing, you know, novels and short stories and things like that. Now doing comic books, how did you come across, you know, Ang Hor Kang and, and developing that relationship where needing or having someone needing to also tell your story through pictures versus just the written word? Right, right. Well, so for everyone who doesn't know, Angkor Kang is the artist who does both the pencils and inks. Uh, the colors are done by a terrific artist named uh, Asifur Rahman. Um, and uh, so how did I meet Ang? You know, I, I put out a casting call because I can't draw to save my life. If, if I had to draw this comic, it would be the most hideous thing on earth and no one would buy it. So I put out a casting call on ArtStation, which is this really wonderful community where uh, pencilers, inkers, colorists, and you know, would-be's in all those categories um, hang out and you can post. And I posted and got, I forget how many hundreds of responses. And I was looking for a particular style. I didn't know what I was looking for until I saw it, but Ang does a, um, 
a, a pencil style that's very much like a, a young Frazetta, Frank Frazetta, with lots of detailed lines, cross hatching. It all looks lived in. He makes a universe that isn't flat. And uh, the characters look physical, which is what I wanted. I wanted uh, Joanna in particular. She's a very beautiful woman. And I wanted you to have the the uh, the sense of that physicality because she uses her body as one of her weapons in the course of doing her job. And uh, I just saw the work and fell in love with it. And it became a very easy decision. There were some other wonderful artists who responded to the post and we've used them on other books and we'll continue using them. Uh, but Ang was, was clearly the right one for Gun Honey. And uh, it was just a coincidence that I was telling a story set in Singapore and Malaysia, and he happens to live in Ipoh, Malaysia. God only knows how that happens. You know, that, that's mm -hmm. one of those random coincidences. But it made it nice to do the flashbacks because I knew that the person drawing it knew what that part of the world looked like. So he didn't have to go on Google the way I did, you know, and say, <laughs> OK, if uh, Joanna is a kid and her brothers went swimming in the local swimming hole, what kind of swimming hole would it be? You know, what 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 is it like in Malaysia? What's it like in Singapore? And so. Um, he was able to draw that really well. In the second Gun Honey, uh, I have us go back to Malaysia, which I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Uh, but again, because he knew how to draw it, I figured let's take advantage of that. And so when we open the book, uh, Joanna's off the grid, recovering from the events of the first Gun Honey, and she had to go somewhere to lie low. And so she picked a beautiful island off the coast of Malaysia, and that's where we find her. Somewhere along the way, she seemed to neglect to pack a swimsuit. Uh, but that doesn't inhibit her much when she's... Uh, all by herself. Of course, she's not all by herself for long. Yeah. Now, I, I do have a question about Joanna that I want to get to in a second, but sure. more, more on this with Ang. With, with one thing we hear about from other creators that we've had, I'm specifically writers, um, when they team up with an artist, usually the conversation kind of starts of like, what do you want to draw? And I totally understand the whole idea of you have this idea that you want to have drawn. I'm just curious, what were their part of this process where either talking to Ang and even before you, I know you kind of laid it out a little bit, but what were some of the challenges that you faced um, trying to get him to, to bring your story to life and then also vetting out the other people? Oh, absolutely. You know, by the time I hooked up with Ang for the first book, the four scripts, it's a four issue uh, series that then gets collected as a graphic novel. The four scripts were written. So the basic, the plot was there and really all the events were there. Uh, but I did go to him and say, you know, you decide how you split this up and you decide how it looks on the page. Uh, I've written it out in panel format, but if you look at a page and you think this is not the best way to present the material, it, I, I highlight it in yellow right on the first page of the script. Every issue of the script, I said, you figure this out. You know, if this isn't right, you tell me, you come back and tell me. Because visually, he was much more of an expert than I was. Uh, for the first series, uh, he, he stuck to it. I think he was also feeling his way around working with a writer on another country and so on. Uh, mm. And so he stuck to the script pretty closely, although from time to time he would draw things that I didn't e expect or he'd draw what I described in a way I didn't expect and I thought it was great. You know, uh, He does a bunch of these sort of Will Eisner things where a character will reach outside the frame he's standing in and uh, or lean on the side of the frame that uh, that he's in and so it kind of breaks the fourth wall and i love that stuff so anytime mm. ang did that i just fell in love with it and uh, but for the second book there he was already part of the team before i set the first word down on paper and i went to him and i said you know well what would you like to draw exactly as you described it and he had some ideas and when we had fight scenes he wanted to do more fight scenes you know nice. so joanne is a character who infiltrates right if she's right. doing her job right she doesn't get into fights but she's good at it and so i thought yeah, sure let's do a fight scene and he said well there's this muay thai move that i really would love to draw where there's like a kick up behind a person's head and i said good that's good let's do that and so there's a fight scene in the very constrained space of a moving rv uh, actually it may have stopped by the time the fight happens the, the rv may have stopped but in any event we're inside an rv so very tight space and these two people are going at it and uh 
you have to really be ingenious with your hand-to-hand -hand combat when you really don't have much room to fight it. Uh, anyway, that was fun. So, so I don't think we would have come up with that. Similarly, at the end, oh boy, I don't want to spoil anything, but the mm -hmm. end of the second series, there's a sequence that takes place in Monaco in a theater with a stage full of topless showgirls, because why not? And the question was, what exactly would their costumes look like insofar as they have them? What would the costumes look like? Uh, on one hand, they have to be free-flowing enough that these, these women can fight. And on the other hand, you don't want them to look ridiculous. And so going back and forth on how they should be dressed, that's actually something we're still working on as we speak, because huh. um, Ong has finished the pencils for two and 21, 20 seconds issues. He's on the last page of issue three, penciling issue three. And that's the point at which we get to see these costumes for the first time. So I'm I'm holding my breath waiting to see what these <laughs> girls are going to be dressed in. Nice. Okay. Um, so you actually, you bring up Joanna and how, you know, she doesn't want to be in fights if she's doing her job correctly. Totally makes sense. But when it came to developing, I know you talked a little bit about her, uh, her occupation and everything and how you kind of came up with her being on the, the other side of the law. I'm curious, though, like, how did you decide? I know the name Gun Honey kind of led to the gun running a little bit, but working out the finer details of her occupation and everything, how did you come to all that? Well, as you say, it had to have something to do with guns or the title would make no sense. And it had to probably be a woman or the honey might not make a ton of sense. But then what, what does she do with guns? Well, the obvious answer is she's an assassin. She goes around and shoots people. But it just felt like we'd seen that before. It felt like we'd seen a lot of characters, maybe not women so often, but a lot of characters who uh, use guns. And then I thought, well, what else could you do with guns? And uh, we'd seen uh, thieves who stole things, but I didn't remember ever seeing someone whose job it was to do the opposite, break into some place and leave one more thing there than there was when you got there. And that, that just seems like an interesting twist. So you could do all these high stories, but in reverse, where, uh, you know, the goal was not to remove something from the scene, but to leave something in the scene. And you could do that for a lot of purposes. And the more you think about it, you come up with more plot ideas uh, because you could leave a gun for somebody to use in a in a violent circumstance, but you could also leave evidence to implicate them in a crime. Uh, you could theoretically, uh, I, I don't even know all the things we might do in future installments, but there are a lot of things you can plant. Uh, you can you can plant drugs, you could plant all sorts of things. So mm -hmm. uh, I liked the idea of someone whose great talent was getting in places and getting out of places and leaving behind surprises. Could be a ticking bomb, who knows? So what I wanted was for her skill at that to be almost incredible, you know, almost impossible to believe in the same way that when you see Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs and he's all tied to that uh, that that dolly that they wheel him around on. Mm -hmm. And somehow in the scene with, I think it's Chilton, he gets hold of Chilton's fountain pen and he later uses the, uh, the, the, the little clip to pick his handcuffs. We have no idea how he gets his hands on Chilton's fountain pen. It's impossible. He couldn't possibly have, but it's so cool when he does. Mm -hmm. And I wanted Joanna's skills to be sort of in that character, in that, in that category. And I think you can get away with that in a comic almost more even than a movie and certainly more than a book. Uh, you don't have to explain every last thing that happens between panel A and panel B, as long as it's fun. It's, it's the Roger Rabbit principle. It's like Bob Hoskins says to Roger Rabbit, you mean you could have taken those handcuffs off any time? And he says, no, only when it was funny. And here it's like, you, you mean Joanna can do anything she needs to be able to do? Yeah, but only when it's cool. Right? Only when it really yeah. makes you happy as a reader. Mm -hmm. And so I, I like to do that. I don't want to push it too far where it's just ridiculous, but I like having it be a tiny little bit ridiculous. Yeah, and I mean you get that right off right off the rip too in that first issue, and when it, when it all comes together, I know at least for me, I was like, "Oh shit, that that's <laughs> tremendous!" Right, like that was mm -hmm. that was that was fantastic. 
Um, Nick and I, um, you know, on, on our show, we we discuss a lot of indie books. I mean, we we do discuss a fair share of Marvel. You know, DC. non premiere now, Joe. Non premiere. Not want to meet the guy who came up with that. Yeah, non premiere. <laughs> yeah. So, and, you know, because as I said earlier, when I was at Newbury Comics, I hadn't heard of this book, yep. and it was just through talking, you know, with one of the guys I know at the you know at the bookstore. He's like, oh yeah, you know. So it was. This was this was optioned before, really. Uh, the first as the first issue was coming out. That's right. When did you know throughout the process? Because I know you said it took you a little bit by surprise. But how did you know, or when did you know that it was going to become the hit that it became? Oh, I didn't know that until well after it was published. When the first issue started selling and people started talking about it online. Uh, and I have to give an awful lot of the credit. I mean, I give enormous credit to Ang, who did an amazing job. But I have to give a lot of the credit to our cover artists, uh, Adam Hughes, who did that eye-popping uh, issue one cover A. Mm. Actually, it was the FOC cover. But uh, the Adam Hughes cover, Robert McGinnis, Bill Sienkiewicz, and a number of these other uh, painters, I think the covers drew people in before they oh. even knew the story would be fun. Now, fortunately, I, I think they liked the story when they read it, but they didn't know that when they bought it, right? They knew what the cover had. And so those really amazing covers are a big part of what make Gun Honey what it is. And we're trying to do that again for, for the second one. Uh, so I didn't know it would be a success, but it wasn't the success that got it options. So I had one advantage going in. I mentioned that I'd written for television. I did a show for six years on sci-fi called Haven, which was based on a book called The Colorado Kid by Stephen King, which is a book that I published in the prose side of Hard Case Crime. And the producers I worked with for that, Pillar Segan, uh, formerly Pillar Segan Shepherd, that production company, which is uh, familiarly connected to the um, uh, Pillar, who worked years and years ago on Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, those guys were, they're old friends. I've worked with them before. And I called up Lloyd Segan and I said, I've got this weird comic book. It's not a superhero, but it's kind of cool. Uh, would you be interested in taking a look at it? And he said, and I described it to him. And he said, you know, the funny thing is I just set up a partnership with a production company based in Malaysia. And how many new comic books wow. are there? where the main character is Malaysian and the art is by a Malaysian. And can I, do you mind if I show it to them? And, and I, I said, no, that's great. Absolutely show it to them. And it happened to be the case that this company, which is one of the oldest working in Malaysia and does a lot of production work for major, major productions there. They produced the uh, Asian version of the bridge, which was this really good sort of 24 style action uh, suspense series. Anyway, they looked at it and they said, this is great. You know, I, I'd, we'd love to do a show that's about a heroine from our part of the world. And so we were able to put together that option agreement uh, very quickly, even before we knew that the book was going to be a success. And then when it became a success, of course, that made it uh, e even easier. So that is still in process. Of course, many more things get optioned than actually get made. So there's no guarantee it'll get, get made. Uh, but we are on the third draft of the script, which is written by someone really terrific. Uh, the script is going around to a variety of directors, some of whom you probably would have heard of and some of whom I guarantee you would not have and actresses to, to look at the main part. And uh, yeah, I'm hopeful. It, it would be nice. Now, if the show happens, it's going to be very different. So in, this is another interesting thing. In comics, you can have the internal monologue. And you can have a comic that's really about a loner. But on TV, you don't want to watch just one character all, you know, for an hour, watch one character doing things. You have She has to have people to talk to and interact with. There has to be a relationship there. And so we're building out the set of uh, people on her team. Like when she gets injured, who does she go to, to fix her up? And, uh, you know, who, who are the people that supply her with all these cool toys? Is she also a brilliant engineer? No, that's too much. She shouldn't actually make the guns herself. And so she has this cadre of people who help her out. And we're going to meet them on the TV show. I, I hope it happens. It would really be great to, to see this on TV. But even if it doesn't, obviously, I, I'm thrilled 
uh, with the success it's having as, as a comic book. But I think everyone would have fun. Uh, I, I suspect it would probably be a little less sexy on TV. Uh, I, <laughs> well, I think, it depends on, on, you know, if it's on HBO, maybe, right, it's, right. maybe it's on That's Showtime, true. you know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. You never yeah. know. But uh, I think the uh, I think what people are willing to put up with on TV and, and what they're willing to put up with in comics is, yep. is different. Yep. Uh, although I'm not sure. I'm not sure I understand exactly why that is. There's certainly plenty of, uh, you know, Game of Thrones did not exactly have a shortage of uh, of people in in very little clothing, so I'm not sure that 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 should be a, a non-starter for TV. But we'll, we'll we'll find out. With the success that came from this first run of Gun Honey, when you first wrote it, did you have plans to extend it beyond just the first four issue arc? And with the with the success that came with it, did it alter or change your plans for this story and and, and the character of Joanna Tan going forward? Uh, the answers are no and yes. I had no idea that it would ever go on. So I gave it a definitive ending, and uh, the first story is basically self-contained and complete. When you get to the end of the second story, you'll see that I left open a great big gaping uh, door that we can drive a truck through and may literally drive a truck through. And uh, that's because I think it's very unlikely that there won't be a Gun Honey 3. Uh, I didn't choose the subtitle Blood for Blood for this reason, but it occurred to me after I chose it that we can go alphabetically. So the next one would probably be called Gun Honey Collision Course. And I don't know what the Ds will be for uh, for, for the next one. But as far as I'm concerned, if people keep enjoying it, I'll do 26 of them. That's no problem at all. And uh, yeah, so I'm leaving the storyline open in kind of a big, exciting way at the end of, of the second story so that people have something to look forward to in the third. The first time out, I honestly thought this would be it. We invested a bunch of money uh, paying really top-notch artists and, and wanting to pay them well. And the investment, I thought there was a very good chance we would lose a lot of money on it. Uh, not hundreds of thousands of dollars, but you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And it would sell very modestly and critics might like it, but there's no way it would break even. And I'd still be proud of it. Uh, but then it ended up doing really, really well. So who, who, who can count on that? You just can't. Right. So when, now that you have all this hype surrounding it and everything, I mean, when you go to write this second arc or even was the whole first arc done by the time that you had pitched this to um, to your buddies from from sci-fi originally? Uh, yes, the the four scripts were done. I think maybe the art wasn't complete. It's possible that Ong was still drawing because that takes much longer. I, I can write 22 pages a lot faster than he can draw 22 pages. Of course. I think that's yeah. true with any, any author artist combo. Uh, but yeah, I think I knew what the story was and I could describe the story to them and they understood what the big twist in the story was. And the intention would be for the first season arc of the TV show to match the big beats of this first uh, book of Gun Honey with plenty of changes thrown in for the fun of it. But the basic story would be there. And then would we would we then use the second book for the second season? I'm not sure. The two might deviate at that point, because once you've got all the new characters, I'm not using any of the new TV characters in the second uh, series of the comic story. Mm. The second series of the comic story is still really just Joanna and uh, Brooke, the government agent that she she kind of develops a good working relationship with uh, yep. by the end of, of the first series. Mm. They're, the, they're, they're, they're the old friends we see. Uh, but basically the premise of the second series, I, I wanted to beat her up a little bit. You know, I wanted to give her a hard time. And so my notion was she's recuperating from the first book. And while she's off the grid, somebody comes in and starts committing crimes using her MO, but it's not her. It's somebody else. And this person is physically stronger than she is, physically larger than she is, and uh, probably a better chess player than she is and hmm. wants her dead. And so we start with her on her heels she's already sort of rocking from punches and she never 
quite gets uh, off that bad footing until we get to the end of the story. So she's she's always on the run in the second one. It's just something different. Uh, I gave an instruction to Ang, which only old timers, you guys are too young, old timers <laughs> will remember the reference. I took a photo from Rocky Four, which was little Sylvester Stallone, who in real life is probably five foot six or something like that. Uh, I should talk, I'm five foot eight. But anyway, he's he's this sort of boxer, but he's not huge. And he's standing toe to toe with Ivan Drago, who was the Russian uh, blonde, uh, flat top shaved uh, boxer, and he must have been six foot three. And so uh, Rocky is staring basically into Drago's pecs, and Drago is saying, I will break you. And so I clipped that and I gave that to Ang, and I said, This is what we've got. You know, Joanna is quite small. She's very, very good at what she does, but she's not physically large. And her opponent is this blonde Amazon, and the two of them are going to go toe to toe. And somehow Joanna has to survive. So oh. that's, that's Gun Honey. Oh, for okay. blood. Oh. So, uh, you know, the first arc of Gun Honey, you know, is four issues long. Will yeah. Will Blood for Blood still be four? <clears throat> excuse yeah. me, be four issues as well, or it'll be a little bit longer? No, it's it's four issues as well, twenty two pages per issue. That's a that's a Titan hallmark. I think other publishers do something similar, maybe exactly the same. I don't know, uh, but it feels like a good length. Then you can charge uh, a price for the graphic novel. That's not outrageous. You don't have to charge an arm and a leg because it's this thick phone book thing. Hmm. Uh, and four issues actually feels like enough room to tell a a good tight story. If you were trying to tell War and Peace or, you know, some epic or even your Game of Thrones, that's a lot of characters and a lot of time to pass. But for, for a Gun Honey story, I kind of want it to feel like a 90 minute movie or a 120 minute movie. Yeah. You sit down with your popcorn and before the popcorn's all eaten, <laughs> the story's done, right? You, you don't want it to be, um, you don't want to be one of those things where it's a five tub <laughs> popcorn event you want it to be uh breathless and breathtaking that's that's mm -hmm. gun honey for you i'll probably write something else at one point that's this you know big epic and mm -hmm. about abraham lincoln reciting the gettysburg address but even the gettysburg address was really short <laughs> well you did accomplish that it definitely has that vibe for sure so when you what it sounds like as we're, we're kind of talking to you and getting further insight into the show and everything too it sounds like there hasn't been a huge impact on how you're approaching the title so like it seems like you still have like a clear vision for what you want to do but is there any like like anything that you kind of have to battle as you're going through this process, thinking like, are we going to do this with the show at all? Or do I not want to, is it going to be too different? And so if, if the show actually gets on the air, I'm going to feel a lot more pressure to incorporate elements from the show. I know that. And it's not because anyone's going to be physically, I mean, they're not going to twist my arm literally. It, I don't even think they're going to twist my arm emotionally, but what's hmm. going to happen is either the show will be a success or it won't. But and if it's a success, I'm going to want to import those characters. I'm going to want to give people a taste of what they enjoy on TV. Hmm. Even if it's not a success, Success, let's be honest, the least successful show on television still reaches far more people than the most successful comic book. A successful comic book might sell 100,000 copies, and an unsuccessful TV show reaches well over a million. It reaches millions. So if it gets on TV, I will almost certainly want to do some kind of tie-in. But you know what? You can actually have two alternate universes running simultaneously. You can have like the mm -hmm. Flash TV universe and then the Flash comic universe. They don't have to be exactly the same. Uh, but I don't do anything in the comic that contradicts what's coming in the TV show. So it's not like, you know, in one she loses an eye and in the other she's got two eyes. That would be weird. Um, I, I hope they don't, you know, cost her an eye. Although sometimes that can be cool, like Nick Fury. But uh, mm. in any event, I think it's going to be possible to have the two coexist perfectly well. But, I, you know, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. The show may very well never get on the air. I'm such a pessimist. You know, we just... Um, <laughs> On the pro side of the line, on the hard case crime pro side, we just won an award, which is, I'm very proud of it. We won the Edgar Allan Poe Award, which is for best 
mystery novel of the year. And I went into that awards banquet telling everyone, I mean, I actively said to everyone in the room, we're going to lose this award. We are absolutely definitively going to lose this award. And I knew who was going to win it and it wasn't us. And I told everybody that, including the judges. I went up to the judges and I said, I know you gave it to someone else. And literally up to the moment when they read our book's name, I was absolutely certain I was going to lose. So what I say about TV is it's never going to make it on the air. It's never yeah. going to happen. Got it. Until yeah. the day I'm sitting with my clicker on my couch and I see it on the screen, I won't believe it. That's fair. That's but fair. it could happen. Congrats on the award, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a book called Five Decembers, and it is astonishing. It's an amazing book. It's set during World War II in the Pacific Theater. This uh, police detective from Honolulu gets uh, called to a double murder scene. It's gruesome. And the killer is uh, fleeing and the killer flees overseas to Guam, across the Pacific to Hong Kong. And the police detective follows him, chases him and winds up uh, in prison on a trumped up charge. And it's December 6th, 1941. And while he's sitting in prison, Pearl Harbor happens. And suddenly Japan invades Hong Kong and he's stuck in this prison cell and the Japanese army comes pouring in. And it's like, what happens next? It's it's scary. It's disturbing. It's weird. It's uh, dark, heartbreaking, beautiful love story. Five Decembers by James Kestrel. Even your fans who only like comic books and don't like the idea of reading 300 pages with only one picture. Uh, it's a hell of a book. So I encourage anyone who anyone who wants a good read to pick up Five Decembers. So so speaking of uh, of that, what can you tell us about your hard case crime uh, imprint and some of the un, uh, other titles and books that fall under that? So Hard Case Crime was created. I created it uh, with my friend Max Phillips about 20 years ago. And the idea was in the old days, back in the 1940s, 50s, there were really skinny paperback novels that were all published with gorgeous painted covers, usually with beautiful women and tough guys with guns. And the books would run 150 pages and you could read them in a night. And they really were the equivalent of a good entertaining movie. They weren't doorstops. They weren't like 350 pages where you spend a lot of time musing on the main character's childhood. It wasn't that kind of book. It was sort of sexy, exciting thrillers, and it was crime novels, heist novels, murder novels. And I said, why don't people publish books like that anymore? And we were out drinking, and we said, well, why don't we do it? You know, that's the kind of thing you think when you've been drinking. But the next day, I was ready to give up the whole thing, but Max is a graphic designer, a brilliant graphic designer, and Max uh, designed some covers. He, he dummied up some covers and said, well, if we did that thing, you remember that thing we talked about last night? And I said, no, what are you talking about? This was two weeks later. So the thing we talked about two weeks later, two weeks ago. Uh, and uh, he showed me his dummied up covers and they looked so good that I said, I've got to do this. I can't let him down. And so I put together a list of people we could go to to get books written and so on. And it's been around now for almost 20 years. The books are, you know, with, with apologies for patting myself on the back, but really I'm patting Max on the back because he's the graphics guy. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful to look at. I know a lot of people buy them just for the covers. We've had... Uh, a number of artists who are well-known in the comic field do covers for us, in particular the late Glenn Orbick, who was a brilliant uh, comic artist, mostly for DC, but he also did some Marvel. Uh, incredibly realistic, sort of like Alex Ross, but a very, you know, sort of a brushier, not quite as tight look. And uh, poor Glenn died at age 52. He had uh, he had a tumor, and uh, it was very sad. But before he died, he did oh, probably 20 covers for us. Anyway, the, the idea is our books look gorgeous. And then when you sit down and read them, even if you're not a habitual reader who reads 10 books a week, they're the kind of thing that'll pull you in. Um, and so any, any comic book fan that is into uh, Ed Brubaker, for example, and Criminal would enjoy, or Darwin Cook's take on the Parker uh, character for his graphic novels, uh, The Man with the Getaway Face, and he did a couple of others. Sad that poor Darwin also also is gone. In any event, uh, our books are meant to be quick, 
delicious reads. They're sort of like the, the, the potato chips of literature. <laughs> you, you, you eat one, you want another. And uh, you can find them all at hardcasecrime.com. You'll you can just uh, take a stroll through 150 of our uh, of our covers, and there's a sample chapter from every one of our books. So you don't even have to pay anything. Just read the first chapter of 100 books, huh. and uh, they're great. They're they're genuinely great fun. Uh, Stephen King has written three books for us. Before he died, we worked with Michael Crichton on two books, uh, but also folks on the literary end like Joyce Carol Oates and Gore Vidal. We have books from them. And uh, yeah, I, I think people, anyone who has any taste for for this sort of old fashioned crime story will get a kick out of uh, hard case crime. Well, one yeah. that, we, that jumps out to us, right, Joe, is a walk among the tombstone. Uh, oh, we, yeah. see, we see that. And then, of course, you know, Joe's talked about Krista Faust on, on this show quite a bit because she's done stuff over at AWA. We really like her work. Uh, was she right now, right now, Joe? Hit me, right? Yeah, hit yeah. me. That's that's right. So mm. so Krista, Krista's amazing. Krista wrote um, a comic book for us called Peepland with Gary Phillips that was based on her own fictionalized, heavily fictionalized, because it's a murder story. And as far as I know, nobody got murdered in front of her. But uh, she worked in a peep show in Times Square when she was a, a, a young lady. And uh, it inspired Peepland, which was our very first hard case crime graphic novel. And before that, she wrote a book called Money Shot, which some people have chosen, many people have chosen as the best hard case crime book ever that we ever published, uh, about a, a retired adult film actress named Angel Dare, who is called back in to do one last movie and winds up... Uh, left for dead in the trunk of a car. Well, she's not dead. And the people who left her there are going to be sorry because she gets out of the car and she tracks them down and uh, doesn't allow justice not to be served. And so Krista is a, is a terrific writer of prose novels, also comic books. Uh, I haven't read Hit Me yet, but I'm sure it's outstanding and I will go get it. I didn't even know, I was wondering how you pronounce AWA, whether you say AWA, uh. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> there you uh, go. But they do some really nice things. And uh, yeah, Krista is great. Um, I got to check out Peepland. Yeah. I don't know if Joe's going to call dibs on that first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you should still be able to find the, the graphic novel. The, the individual issues are probably priced out of anyone's uh, range at this point because some mm -hmm. of those had uh, really terrific covers. Um, ben Oliver did too. Ben Oliver's doing a cover for, for uh, Gun Honey 2. I've always been a huge fan of, of his work. Uh, I realize I'm jumping from topic to topic, but for, for the second Gun Honey, we have Art Germ. Adam Hughes came back to do another one, uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, a wonderful French illustrator named Romain Hugo, who does two things. He's a pilot himself. In addition to being an artist, really good artist, he's a pilot. He flies planes. And what he does is beautiful women and planes. That's what he draws. <laughs> and in uh, in Gun Honey, uh, Blood for Blood, we're in a, uh, a helicopter for a number of scenes. And so that was an excuse to get uh, Romain in to draw Joanna plus a helicopter. Uh, we have two versions of that cover, actually. Uh, he was French, so I thought he might not be offended if I asked him to do this. He did the first sketch with Joanna in a really gorgeous bikini and the helicopter overhead. And I said, that's great. I'll take it. Now, what about taking the bikini off? <laughs> and he said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And so we have a second version where she's naked, and that one's only going to be available in uh, bagged form. So if you're in a comic book store and you mm. see that issue in a bag, it's because we left the bikini off. Sounds like yeah, Joe's comic yeah. book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got, I've got, I've got all four uh, issues here, uh, and all four I, I deliberately picked, you know, different uh, style art covers because they're oh great. You're you're right. They are gorgeous. They are beautiful, and, and they really do range. You know, like not just you know obviously with the style, but but the tone as well. And and one of my favorite ones, I forget. Um, if you show me, I'll tell you who it was. Oh, is this Raphael? Um, let's see, right here. 
Oh, that's that's Robert McGinnis. So Robert yeah, McGinnis is a movie poster painter. He's turning 96 this year and he's still what? painting. And uh, Bob, so Bob's most famous for doing the the posters for the original Sean Connery, James Bond movies. And I think he did one yeah. or two of the uh, Roger Moores as well. But he also, probably his single most famous painting uh, poster is for the Audrey Hepburn movie, Breakfast at Tiffany's, where uh, she's got a cat on one shoulder and is holding yep. a cigarette and a cigarette holder. And it's a beautiful, famous painting. You'll see it if you ever walk down the street in Manhattan. You'll see people selling like refrigerator magnets of that painting and posters of that painting. And we wanted him to do something inspired by that painting. And so he did uh, Joanna standing with a gun on her shoulder, just like uh, Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's and at her feet is a rifle. And so that's that's the inspiration for that particular painting. And it's it's one of my favorites. I really do love that one. And he yeah, is coming back for the second one. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Crazy. Yeah, because she almost kind of looks like Cher in this picture. Yeah, a lot of Bob's paintings look like Cher. As far as I know, Cher never modeled for him, but he's <laughs> he, he's been doing it for so long, you know, uh, it's not impossible that a young share could potentially have modeled for him once upon a time. Wow. Yeah, and it just—you're right. That has, it sort of has that old school sort of James Bondish, yeah. just it, it, noirish feel to it. And 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 that's you know you you mentioned it earlier. Like not a lot of comic readers love crime noir. I love it. It's one of oh, my, that's great. it's one of my favorite genres. You know, because it takes me back to my childhood. Because you know, my <laughs> being at my grandmother's house, we'd we'd always watch Columbo or Murder She Wrote. So I've, there you go. There you I've go. got this fascination with with crime and noir. And uh, what were some of your you know inspirations? You know, whether it be through prose or comic books growing up that led you to want to write this type of story. Well, there were a lot of books that I read. I fell in love with the work of James M. Cain, for instance, who wrote famously books like Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice, both of which became very successful movies back in the black and white movie days. And so there were both movies and novels like that. But a lot of it was back to things like uh, James Bond. So I was a Roger Moore kid. My parents were Sean Connery. When 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 the movies first came out in the '60s, by the time I was going to the movies, it was Octopussy with, uh, with with Roger Moore. And people now say, well, he was goofy, he was silly. Yeah, he was he was goofy, he was silly. Uh, but the movies were great. I mean, they were full of adrenaline. And then in 1981, I remember I was 11 years old, and my mom said, "We're going to take you to the movies. It's this thing called Raiders of the Lost Ark." And I said, I don't want to go. Well, you know, Lost Ark to me, that meant it was um, around the time that uh, Leonard Nimoy had a TV show called In Search Of. And he would always have things like ancient astronauts and mystical nonsense. And one of the episodes was In Search of Noah's Ark. And so I thought, oh, no, this is going to be some <laughs> schlocky thing about how Noah's Ark is on top of Mount Ararat or some nonsense. Like, don't take me. Don't take me. And then I went and there was Harrison Ford getting dragged under a car, a truck. And I just I couldn't. My nerves were so on edge that when I got out of the movie theater, I couldn't stop moving that adrenaline. I had this feeling that I wanted to tell stories like that. And I love the idea of being the one to come up with the idea. Hey, Harrison Ford. Why don't you slip under a truck and hang on by a bullwhip? I love the idea of being the writer. It's funny. I never wanted to be Harrison Ford. I never wanted to be the guy dragged behind the truck. I wanted to come up with the idea of, hey, why don't you get dragged behind a truck? And so I, I guess that's what pushed me in the direction of being a writer, because you can come up with all the ideas you want. I'm basically a coward when it comes to actual physical activities. Like I was the kid in dodgeball who would go up to the line and say, go ahead, just touch me with it gently so you don't have to hit me in the head. Uh, I was completely shameless. But when I'm writing, when I'm writing, I can be, you know, Tony Stark. When I'm writing, I can be the ballsiest guy on earth. And that's that's the great thing. You know, when you're a nerdy kid, a little scrawny nerdy kid, comic books let you be Superman. And uh, writing lets you be Steven Spielberg. And so it, it's it's a wonderful escape. And I have to think 
look, not 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 everyone who reads comics has started out as a scrawny kid. You've got weightlifters who read comics, but I think there's a special place in in your heart if you are that uh, scrawny kid. I think Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman, I don't think either of them was a muscle man. I don't think either of them was a bodybuilder. And so I think a lot of where you know Batman and Superman and Spider Man came from was my real life isn't so amazing, uh, but in my dreams, you know, I can leap from building to building. And so that's for me, that's a that's a big part of what comics are about. And that's, you know, Joanna is a wish fulfillment character. So I, I one last thing that I wanted sure. to ask you about, uh, like kind of more to do, I guess, with the hard case crime stuff that just kind of jumps out at us. You, you brought him up earlier. You do you've you've done work with Stephen King over the years. How did you come to develop a relationship with him? Because I know he's also on featured on uh, I think at least one of your covers too for kind of praising your work on on Gun Honey and just in general. Yeah, I don't know if he's read Gun Honey specifically, although I should send it to him now that now that it occurs to me. So Stephen King, I didn't know Stephen King. I did know, however, that he liked these old style uh, paperback books from the 50s when he grew up because he'd written essays about it. You know, he would write in Fangoria magazine or the various places he would write introductions to his books. He would talk about being in love with this kind of old crime fiction. For instance, he wrote a book called The Dark Half, which is about a novelist who writes crime novels under a pseudonym. And the pseudonym comes to life and starts killing people. And of course, it's the writer who's blamed for it because they share the same fingerprints. It's a great premise for a novel. And he named the pseudonym uh, George Stark because his favorite books of this category growing up were the Parker novels written by Richard Stark. Well, Richard Stark was really Donald Westlake, who was a friend of mine and who we were publishing in Hard Case Crime. So I got I, I got the name. I tried to find uh, Stephen King's agent. I couldn't find it, but I found the name of his accountant. Don't ask me how. It was Googling until wow. the cows came home. Found the name of his agent, Arthur something or other, and I found his address. It happened to be in New York. I live in New York. And I said, okay, what the heck? And I got a package together of cool-looking, dummied-up covers, and I wrote a letter saying, you don't know me, and you don't owe me anything, and but... I'm going to be reprinting these books by authors you loved growing up. And people, I'm afraid people might not pick these books up because they've never heard of Richard Stark, but they have heard of Stephen King. And if you would just write us one sentence, you know, give us a blurb, something nice about the books, maybe some people will pick up these books and discover these writers you loved. I gave it to the accountant. I thought that was the end. I, I didn't really expect to hear back. You know me, I'm a pessimist. Mm. And a few months passed. And then I got a call from a guy who said, I'm Stephen King's agent. His name was Chuck Verrill. Very sadly, he just died. I mean, every, everyone's dying left and right. This is no good. We gotta watch Chuck was a great show. guy. Yeah, keep your fingers crossed, Nick. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Maybe we'll make it to the end of this broadcast. So I, Chuck called and he said, Steve wanted me to get in touch with you. He got your package. He saw the samples and he wanted me to tell you he doesn't want to write you a blurb. And then he paused because he was a cruel man. And I said, I, I understand. Thank you for letting me know. That's really kind. You didn't have to call because he said he wants to write you a book instead. And my brain just flipped like a light switch. I think it flipped from on to off. I didn't know what to say. It was like <laughs> the Jackie Gleason thing in the honeymooners. Where he's humming, 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 humming. And I, I didn't know what to say. And he said, you know, he's written this book. It's called The Colorado Kid. It's not exactly hard-boiled. It may or may not be exactly the sort of thing you're doing, but he would like to give you a look at it. Would you be interested in reading it? And I said, yes, yes, I'd be interested. And it was terrific. And it was different from the other books we were doing, but that's fine. I, I loved it. And I said, yes, we'll gladly do it. And that was the start of that relationship. And eight years later, he wrote another book and Chuck called me again and said, Steve has another book that he thought you might like to see. It was called Joyland, which was phenomenal, set in a carnival and sort of inspired in some ways, I think, by books like Nightmare Alley, which became a movie last year. Hmm. Uh, and then eight years after that, he wrote one called Later. And, and uh, it, it's 
above and beyond the call. You know, he could have sold those books to any publisher on earth and they all could have paid him far more upfront than we could. We're a one man operation. Hard Case Crime literally has a staff of zero. That's you're looking at the entire staff of Hard Case Crime. Wow. And uh, he didn't have to work with us, but he loved what we were doing and uh, said nice things about it and supported us. And because his books do very well, of course, uh, that gives us the resources we need to publish a lot of books by authors who aren't Stephen King and deserve to be in print. And uh, that includes bringing back old books that we reissue and, and give people a chance to read for the first time in 30, 40, 50 years and new books, new books by current authors and comic books. So, you know, we work with Titan. Titan does all the publishing for us on the comic book side, but also the prose novel side. And they are a privilege to work with. They do beautiful, physically beautiful books. You know, the covers are very important to us and making sure that our books really stand out on the bookshelf, on the bookstore shelf. That's a big, big part of why people buy our books. So working with a, a, a company like Titan that does such gorgeous printing, uh, they, they really specialize in art books and, and uh, making of movie books and the art of Star Trek and the art and so on. Uh, anyway, Titan's been a pleasure to work with for the last uh, decade plus that we've worked with them. And uh, Stephen King has been a big part of why we're still around after all these years. Wow, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So so last thing uh, for me, Charles, uh -huh. and, and you sort of touched upon it there just a second ago, but, you know, do you have any, you know, what are some of the future projects with outside of Gun Honey, whether it be within comic books or, um, you know, in hard case through, through prose and whatnot that you might have uh, coming up? Uh, we have a project we have currently about halfway underway, which is reissuing every single page, every single panel of Max Allen Collins's classic Ms. Tree comics. Uh, this was the longest running private eye comic book in history, I believe. Uh, Dick Tracy ran longer, but that was a comic strip in newspapers. And it's about a female private eye uh, called whose name is Michael Tree, even though, you know, Michael is not generally a woman's name. But, you know, you, you tell her that she's got a gun. And... Um, the mystery comics appeared in multiple under multiple different publishers. DC did some of them. Eclipse did some of them. Some of them were black and white. Some of them were full, full color, and they were all written by uh, by Max Allen Collins, who also became famous later for uh, Road to Perdition. They really are terrific uh, old comics, and there's not currently a set where you can buy the entire run. And I think we're now three volumes into what will be a six or seven volume set. So the mystery comics are are, are terrific, and and people are very excited about that. Um, and we're looking at a couple of other other um, properties that might be interesting to turn into comics, but I'm reluctant to say what they are yet because we haven't signed the deals. But there, <laughs> there's some fun. We did a Girl with the Dragon Tattoo comic that was actually a pickup from Europe, but it had never appeared in English before. And uh, something on that scale, something as well known as the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo that hasn't yet appeared in graphic novel form, that would be fun to do. So there, there are a couple of things along those lines. On the prose side, we have a book coming up from Jason Starr, who's a name you'll probably know uh, from the comic book world as well. Um, he's done both comics and books based on comics. He did an Ant-Man novel. He did a Gotham novel uh, and quite a few comics. I forget. I think his current one is called Casual Fling. I forget who publishes oh, Casual Fling. AWA. Oh, it isn't. It's another one of the. Yeah, that. <laughs> uh, so Jason's terrific. And he wrote a book, which is rare for us because it tips over the line between uh, crime and science fiction. It's about this guy who sees a woman being shoved into a man's car. This thuggish guy is shoving her into a car and he steps in to help her and he gets stabbed in the gut. That's the opening of the book. He's stabbed to death. But weirdly, he doesn't die. He wakes up. The book's called The Next Time I Die by Jason Starr. He wakes up in a hospital. He has no injury on his abdomen. He turns on the news. The president in the White House is not who he remembered it was. His wife shows up. He was on the verge of divorce. Now she loves him. 
they were childless. Now he's got a daughter. He always wanted a daughter. He's got more money in his bank account than he ever had. He's in good shape. The only problem is the police want to talk to him because he seems maybe to be a murderer. So in this alternate <laughs> universe, he's accidentally fallen into. Everything's better except two countries in Asia are on the verge of nuclear war. Oh, and oh. he may be a murderer. It's a terrific <laughs> book. Uh, we don't do science fiction very often, but this one was so good. It has a real Philip K. Dick feel to it, a real Twilight Zone feel. Like this could be an episode of the old Twilight Zone. You wake up and you think, oh, okay, this is good yeah. news, right? I've got money. Oh, no, it's not good news. <laughs> no news in a hard case crime book is ever good. I'll tell you that. <laughs> there you go. If you ever think you've got good news, nah, not so much. Love it. Until so the last page. Sometimes we have a happy ending. Yeah. Obviously, you are very busy with the publishing side of stuff and then, of course, the writing side of stuff, you know, editing and all this. But what with our show, what Joe and I do is, you know, we, we tell each other about a book that the other hasn't read yet, right? And just, with Joe, he got first dibs at Gun Honey um, and then so on. And we are where we are now. Has there been anything else that you've been reading, whether it's outside of maybe the upcoming projects that you're working on right now? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I... <laughs> I'm way behind on TV watching. I'm way behind on comic books. I picked up uh, a little while ago. I like weird crossovers and I was really floored by one that is so stupid, so stupid. And you probably have seen it because it's at least what, three years old at this point. Um, there was a crossover series between DC and Warner Brothers, which makes sense in a corporate sense because they're both owned by the same company. And I fell in love with a Batman meets Elmer Fudd. <laughs> I thought Batman meets Elmer Fudd was so good. So I highly recommend if anyone can find a copy of Batman meets Elmer Fudd, that was, that was high on the list. I also liked Elvira meets Vincent Price. That was more recent. Um, you know, on, on the comic book side, I haven't been picking up quite as much. Although every time I go to Midtown Comics, which is my local place in Manhattan, uh, I'll pick up whatever the latest issue of Flash is. But I've fallen behind. Like I have an almost complete set of Barry Allen, but that's that's ages ago. And my Flash is much spottier. But I enjoy seeing the old characters come back. Like they'll they'll drag back Mirror Master out of you know retirement, and it's it's cool. So I'll, I'll pick up that stuff. But usually I'm like any other buyer. I'll look at what's on the shelves, and if the cover looks really intriguing or sexy or something, I'll just pick it up. Uh, like Adam Hughes, I'll buy anything that has an Adam Hughes cover, basically. I, I thought Betty and Veronica, I'm not buying Betty and Veronica. But then I saw that it was Adam Hughes, I bought at Betty and Veronica, right? Mm. Uh, so it's it's very art-driven uh, art driven for me. Um, in terms of um, non-prose novels, I've been going through the work of Graham Greene. Now that's serious stuff. Uh, Graham Greene is thought of as a serious literary writer. But I can tell you, if, uh, if any of your listeners out there are you know, in, into watching, into reading uh, dark noir stories, reading Graham Greene is a good way to go. So I, I recommend that. Graham mm. Greene, Raymond Chandler, James M. Cain. I go back to the classics and, and they, they will not be sorry if they do that. Start, start, with, start with Raymond Chandler, the, the Big Sleep, and you will not go wrong. You, you, if, if your heart isn't broken by the Big Sleep, uh, you haven't got a heart. We're getting a masterclass here on this stuff. Though. This is awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Right. It's like that thing. I, I always see these ads for Masterclass and it's like uh, Gordon Ramsay teaches you how to scramble eggs. And I think, well, I mean, come on. How, I know how to scramble eggs. So then I did that. I, I, I subscribed to Masterclass. I said, I've got to see this. And I watched the man scramble eggs. And by God, those were good scrambled eggs. I followed his instruction. <laughs> so I don't think I'm competent to give a Masterclass in anything except maybe how to make Gordon Ramsay's scrambled eggs. Right. Now I can ah, there you go. There you go. Uh, well, Charles, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank of course, you. make sure you all go and pick up Gun Honey in trade form now, available at your local comic shop. Um, but hopefully we can catch up with you again down the line. Can't wait to see the second volume of Gun Honey too. Absolutely. I'm here for you anytime. Just holler and I'll, I'll, I'll jump on. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you.